as barheads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for predetermining this pathway for us. Thank you for saving us, for sanctifying us, for revealing to us that it was by grace motivated by love through faith that these things even happen. These are all yours to give. We are most grateful and thankful for that gift that hung on a cross 2,000 years ago to make even a an evening like this one, a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. The Gospel of Salvation and Sanctification, Part 45. I wouldn't call it a departure, but it certainly is in sort of a um, off to the side, or a side note, as I like to call it, to those things proper. Why predestination? Why all this extra work on predestination, whether it's suffering, prosperity, whatever's in view? It's because of what I mentioned before class. It's really God. If God saves and sanctifies, then in that entire notion, the movement being deliverance, the direction is what you've been predestined to. And that gives us hope. In other words, it gives us the, the proper view of the end goal because life in itself can get confusing as we're going to talk about this evening and if you have the wrong end goals and you adhere to you know the ends justifies the means or the you know the end goal is what pulls you towards it if you've got the wrong end goals because you don't have that great hope of predestination then things can get screwy and so he's equipping us as we transition from salvation perspectives remember our framework to sanctification perspectives in the middle of this all of this he's saying don't forget even why I'm doing that in the great hope that I've given you with something like as fundamental as predestination so that's what I believe he's doing amongst other things go to Isaiah 55 1 Isaiah 55 1 I'll say this, I was thinking about this as well as I was preparing this morning. How each of these lessons as of late has been very unique. I usually do a lot of review, and it's not that review is not in these lessons, but the review component of the lessons probably for the last month or two has been very little. Which means that if you miss a lesson, it's a big deal. I'm not doing a whole lot of review. So if you miss a lesson, or if you miss two or more, I can't imagine what you must think next time you come, or this kind of a thing. So uh, I'm just encouraging you softly to get all the lessons, whatever it takes, get all the lessons. If you miss a class, get it online. Do whatever you have to do to get that lesson. Isaiah 55, 1. <clears throat> Ho, everyone, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Huh. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. 
Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Remember what we're on, prosperity right now. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up, and instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up, and it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. That's what prosperity looks like, folks. That's what prosperity looks like in the Lord's eyes. And as he really started off, as Scripture started off at the beginning, it has nothing to do with the things that you can afford. You can't afford His grace. There's nothing you're going to do to purchase His grace. So you can't afford anything that's worth anything eternal. <laughs> and that's the baseline. That's our starting point. You have to get your mind in the right frame of reference even to talk about prosperity. Or you can talk about it all day long with people out in the world. And they'll talk shop with you all day how to make more money and how to make more wealth and prosperity and blah, blah, blah. And they'll tell you to go to this seminar and then this seminar and buy this book and you know, go to this school and you know, get this job and do all these things so you can get worldly wealth, when the Lord says, I don't even care about that stuff. I know every hair in your head. And, and I take care of every bird. And they don't worry, so don't you worry. Tuesday evening's class was a balance statement lesson, mainly on the continued topic of predestination. For several lessons, we examined the relationship between predestination and suffering, concluding that suffering is a blessing. In tonight's lesson, we will continue to focus on the other side of predestination grace, prosperity. 
So we weren't just predestined to suffer. By grace, you were predestined to prosper. For Christ's sake, though, only the prosperity emphasized in the Bible is eternally weighted. Proverbs 16.11 speaks to his weights and balances or his scales. John 4.36-38, Romans 6.20-22, 1 Timothy 6.6-21, we still haven't gotten there yet. Revelation 3.18-21. So the first thing you must understand is that the world's starting point for defining prosperity is, for lack of a better term, screwy. It really is. The, the world's starting point for defining prosperity is literally backwards. It's opposite from the words. And you have to remember that we go out into a world that literally lives and breathes and functions on that end goal, that idea of prosperity. I mean, everybody wants to be prosperous somehow. Everybody wants, whether it's in any sense of the word. And so if prosperity is sort of an end goal, then you better get the end goal defined properly. The world's going to try to give you some perverted definition for prosperity. So I want to give you a little analogy. You can sit back for a moment. I just made this up. Uh, It's just really to drive the point home. And when I talk about the little boy and the little girl in the story, um, focus on what each person, what each character might consider prosperity. Okay? And how it directs each one differently. A little boy and a little girl are fraternal twins. That means they're not identical, which means they have different personalities even. They are given a school project to work on at home. They are to each build a rendition of their home out of whatever supplies they can find in their house. No shopping whatsoever is allowed. That is part of the challenge. So the teacher sends these two kids home, these twins, sends them home and says, build for me a rendition of your home. But do not go shopping. Don't ask mom and dad to take you to Walmart and get all the supplies. Find whatever you can in your house. Be creative and see what you come up with. That's the assignment. The little boy, who is more rambunctious and often less thoughtful, dashes into the kitchen, partly in an effort to ensure that he gets all of what he perceives as the good supplies for the project. His fear is that if he doesn't gather up all the supplies unto himself right away, His sister might grab some, and he won't be able to build as grand of a representation. While he's rummaging through kitchen drawers, junk drawers, the pantry, closets, etc., making enough of a racket that his mom notices but relents, and she knows her son's determination once his mind is set to something, so there's just no stopping him. Meanwhile, his sister is still on the porch, sipping her sweet tea, contemplating, <laughs> contemplating the best way to construct her version 
of their home. In her mind, she has located a few choice places that contain what could be some very good materials for building, but she'll have to take a little extra time seeking. That's okay, she says to herself, it'll be worth the wait. Besides, it'll be fun looking for the good stuff in the attic, the garage, and through the shed out back, etc. Within an hour, the boy constructs something out of a cereal box, a Pop-Tart box, and an egg carton, held together with paper clips and some glue paste he found in the junk drawer. He should have colored the pieces before assembling, because afterwards proved difficult. So the original colors of the various surfaces bled through, making for an unevenly painted, quote-unquote, house. Whatever, he said to himself, it's done. Now I can go play PS4. Woohoo! His sister, by now, after... Cons- Does everybody know PS4? It's a video game console. Some of the old people are like, what is that? Is that like a guitar? PS4? It's a video game console. Just saying. His sister, by now, after consulting her dad, if he had any good building supplies, could be found walking around with her mom's clothes basket, gathering up cardboard and Elmer's glue from the garage. She had already found some wood strapping, some nails, and the hammer her dad said she could borrow. She also queried her mom, and her mom directed her to the closet in the spare room with all her sewing supplies where she could choose from old spools of thread, fabrics, etc., After that, she headed up into the attic to find some old glitter, some balsa wood, and some other odds and ends as potential decorations and such. The girl spent all afternoon constructing what turned out to be a beautiful, sturdy, fine representation of her home. The twins left their project on the front porch, unaware of the windstorm that was about to sweep through the area. While they were watching TV with their parents, the storm blew both of their projects off the table. His right up against the porch balusters, hers onto the deck. The father says, son, it's probably best that your project got ruined, given that it was shoddily built. What do you say you and I start afresh? The little boy through his sniffles says, okay, pops, that one was junk. I was more interested in playing my video games with my buddies than with things that really matter. Well said, son. I'm glad you've learned your lesson today. His father gives him a squeeze, something that conveys authority, wisdom, and mercy all at once. The father turns to the little girl whose project appears pretty much unaffected by its three-foot drop from the table to the deck. Nice job, he says. Seems like it was worth the time and effort to seek out good building materials, huh? Now you get to go spend some time with Mom, helping her with her puzzle. He gives her a similar squeeze, but what's conveyed is different, as per the need of the situation. So the little girl trots off while her brother wipes his cheeks and prepares for a long night of rebuilding. She says to her mom while helping with the puzzle, 
My project came out beautiful, Mom. And it was strong enough to withstand a real windstorm. Proof that it was well built. And before her mom could respond, she added, And honestly, I really enjoyed seeking out all the good materials, like a treasure hunt. The building of it was as much fun, maybe even more, than looking at the finished project. Mom says, you speak with such wisdom for a young person. I'm really happy for you. God has prospered your precious little soul. I think I'll keep it forever, says the little girl. I think it'll last, says the mom. Again, the point being amplified is up here on the board, and it has everything to do with prosperity, folks. And I asked you to think about what each of the twins had defined in their souls as prosperity. By grace, you were predestined to prosper for Christ's sake. Only the prosperity emphasized in the Bible is eternally weighted. The little boy believed that prosperity was being able to finish up the project as quickly as possible, as if the gift was in being able to get back to his video games, to his predetermined end goal. That was the little boy's prosperity. And to the little boy, the ends justified the means. In other words, since his mind was already set on his definition of prosperity, he simply executed a plan that got him there. To the girl, prosperity turned out to be the proof of her faith, a la 1 Peter 1.7. To her, she identified prosperity with seeking and laboring diligently. Remember what she said. It was actually more fun going through the process than actually looking at the end result. To her, prosperity was seeking and laboring diligently. That ought to sound familiar, by the way, like biblical wisdom. Go to Proverbs 8.17. Proverbs 8.17 And I hope you can identify in your own life with the little boy or the little girl or both from time to time how we set our own goals based on what we value, based on our scale of values, based on what we think prosperity actually is. And then we go chase after it. And the world says, hurry up! Hurry up or the next one's going to get there. Run into the kitchen. Dash into the kitchen before your sister gets there. Gather unto yourself as much as possible because the guy with the most toys at the end wins. That's what we call prosperity. And we make idols out of those people. We listen to those people as if they're like demigods. They have a lot of money. All of a sudden they become PhDs in every possible philosophy, scientific Anything, everything. We start letting them talk about God as if they knew Him, or denounce God even. And Jesus said, it's harder to get a rich man through the eye of, or a camel through the eye of the needle than get a rich man to come to me. Hmm. 
Proverbs 8, 17, though. Biblical wisdom. I, wisdom, love those who love me. And those who diligently seek me will find me. Riches and honor are with me. Enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even pure gold. And my yield better than choicest silver. I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice to endow those who love me with wealth that I may fill their treasuries. Do you think that wisdom has the audacity to say that that wealth is material? That the great wealth in this life is material? Do you think that the treasuries that wisdom wants to fill up in you Is anything but what you can take with you to heaven? What do you think? So we need to think about divine prosperity. If we're going to talk about being predestined to prosperity, we cannot make the worldly error of thinking that worldly wealth is God's version of wealth. Up here on the board, divine prosperity. Wisdom is among the greatest forms of prosperity. Remember, I was thinking about Solomon. Solomon, everybody thinks of Solomon. What do you think? Most people that don't know him well, Solomon, richest guy ever, right? If you normalized his his assets, he'd be the richest man. He'd be richer than Bill Gates today. That's what everybody thinks about. Solomon, he's so rich. You know what he prayed for? Wisdom. And then what he wrote about in Ecclesiastes was all this money, Nothing. All it is is responsibility. Not that he couldn't handle it because he had the capacity for it because he had more wisdom than any of his contemporaries. But what did he ask for? He asked for wisdom. Because he knew. See, the wise man asked for true wealth. Isn't that funny? It's like chicken and egg almost. The wise guy asked for... No? Wisdom is among the greatest forms of prosperity. I'll take that any day of the week. Give me some bread and water and give me wisdom to realize that that bread and water is from him. I'm happy for the rest of my life. Give me filet mignon and a fine glass of Chablis. (laughs) Huh? You wouldn't believe the grief I got last night. Chablis. It comes in a box. What's wrong with you? Anyways. (laughs) Bill, you're such a snob. Give me filet mignon. What was I saying? Oh, thank you. So give me a filet mignon with, all right, what, all right wise guy. What's, the, what's a good wine? Merlot? All right. Give me a filet in Merlot without any wisdom? I'm miserable. Why? Because as soon as I eat it, it's gone. gone. Once it's gone, it's gone. Wisdom is among the greatest forms of prosperity. Her fruit is better than gold. Proverbs 8.19. Any other form of prosperity in the absence of divine wisdom is fruitless. You have the best job. You make the most money. You can have all the best the world has to offer. If you don't have the wisdom to know where it came from or the desire to give thanks to God, you know, like 1 Thessalonians 5.18, always, 
then that is fleeting. It's exactly what the wisest man, the richest man said. It's all vanity of vanities. It's all gone. It's like the wind. It's gone. You base your... If you think being predestined to prosperity means you're going to be worldly rich, then you're an idiot. But you might be just an uneducated idiot, which is why you're here, which is a good thing. At least you're humble enough to go seek the truth, like the little girl. So any other form of prosperity in the absence of divine wisdom is fruitless. This is what the little boy in the story learned by suffering at the hands of powers beyond his own. This is what we all learn when we suffer at the hands of powers beyond our own. God smashes any notion of prosperity that isn't from Him. At least if you're sitting under a pulpit like this one. He will smash it. If you don't want it smashed, then you leave. If you want to keep your little religion and you pretend, then you leave. If you want truth, then he's going to smash it. And for some of you, based on feedback at last night's Bible study, Tuesday evening's introduction to predestination or that you've been predestined to prosper was awesome. Which means I have a humble congregation that's willing to take it and let God smash anything left. So God smashes any notion of prosperity that isn't from Him. While we are off making our own plans, trying every conceivable way to justify the means to our own ends, we might call that self-sanctification, by the way, to glue it back to our primary course. While we're off trying to justify everything, which we really are good at, I would argue that's one of the primary goals of the worldly system of thinking is just find a way to justify anything and you're good. Trying every conceivable way to justify the means to your own end, self-sanctification. While we're doing that, wisdom speaks to us through Scripture. But as the little girl represents, we must take our time and sit back before we are off and running, blinded by our own ambitions. Up here on the board, more on divine prosperity. We must learn to learn first. We must learn to learn first. The things we build for ourselves are like houses awaiting their own destruction. Proverbs 14, 11 to 14, comparing that to Matthew 7, 26 to 27. Again, the things we build for ourselves are like houses awaiting their own destruction. God may be patient with us, but judgment is always carried out eventually. God hates false prosperity and self-sanctification. Go to Proverbs 14.11. Proverbs 14.11. God hates false prosperity and self-sanctification. Proverbs 14.11. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. 
There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Even in laughter, the heart may be in pain, and the end of joy may be grief. The backslider in heart will have his fill of his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied with his. So this takes us back to our original principle, the one that we noted on Tuesday as well. Very simple, up here on the board, and it's more on divine perspective. God's scale of values is completely different than the world's. The things, that's what Proverbs 16.11 says, my scale, it's my scale, it's my bag of weights. God's scale of values is completely different than the world's. And we have to understand that because we are consistently presented. I actually, I actually pray for you all in, in, in many ways on that front because I'm not quite as inundated as you are now. Being, you know, in a cave most days in the Bible. I mean, this is my life. So I'm not inundated. I'm not assaulted with the same ferocity. I get it in other ways, trust me. But in this way... I've been pretty much delivered from the prosperity taunting, if you would, the constant taunting from the world. And it's, it's I wouldn't say orthogonal, it's um, divorced from what we're being taught tonight. It's literally divorced from. And the majority, especially in this area, the majority of people seem to be completely okay with it. It's totally normalized. It's totally institutionalized in society. The rewards, the accolades, the promote, everything is geared towards an end goal that has geared in another way than our end goal, is, is a different end goal than what the Bible presents us as true prosperity. So it's hard to navigate in that ocean, so to speak. But nonetheless, you'll learn to learn. You'll learn to do that thing. God's scale of values is completely different than the world's. Proverbs 16, 11, Isaiah 55. Nonetheless, again, his scales are the ones that we need to learn about and adhere to when we go about in this life. Proverbs 16, 11, again, a just balance and scales belongs to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are his concern. In Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's our starting point when it comes to prosperity. The whole, you know, my thoughts are not your thoughts theme seems overdrawn at times. But in this case, please do not overlook the application to our study on prosperity. It's really important because the world's going to give you a different definition of prosperity. And if you're not careful, listen, if you're not careful, it's going to stick to you. People say, ah, no, I can watch any movie I ever want to watch. I can read any perverse book. I can listen to ridiculous music. I can hang around with a ship of fools. 
I know the Bible says run with fools and become a fool, but not me. Not me. I'm, I'm like Teflon man. Nothing sticks to me. What a crock. That's just you justifying why you want to spend time with a bunch of idiots. But Billy Joel says they're more fun. Yeah, they're more fun, all right. So do not overlook the application to our study on prosperity. The very foundation of the doctrine of prosperity rests on one fundamental principle and then builds from there. Again, the point, this is it. It's very simple. God's scale of values is completely different than the world's. If you don't understand that, then you will not understand the doctrine of prosperity. You will not understand what prosperity as part of predestination is. You're going to say, oh, well, it's the world's prosperity. I was predestined to receive. And you're going to think that's the end goal. And so you're going to pursue the wrong stuff. You're going to think that going in that direction, there's going to be any red flags. You're going to think that's the way it is. You're going to say, God loves me so much, he's just going to keep blessing me out with worldly goods. And that's what this is all about. Not that I have to share them, not about what I think about them, nothing. Just God loves me so much that he's going to bless my socks off with worldly goods. And that must be what prosperity is. But yet the wisest man, arguably, the wisest during his time, one of the wisest men of all time, said, give me wisdom. Money is a problem. Money is a responsibility. It's just something, I, it's another responsibility. God's scale of values is completely different than the world's. Simple, but absolutely at the core of our studies right now. You must Obtain your scale of values from the Word of God. Or everything's going to be backwards. Literally. Not kind of. It's going to be backwards. They're literally, like, diametrically opposed. The world and God. Makes sense, since the God of this world is such. Divine perspective. What Satan has done to frustrate your deliverance is insert the world's scale of values into your minds, often at a very young age. And then impose, this is the kicker. This is what drives me bananas. Not only does he do that, but then he imposes a sense of unrelenting urgency to get going before someone else beats you to the punch. It's like a rat race, right? It's a carrot. It's not only is it not godly, but there's, get this, there's only so much of this wealth to go around. So if you don't fight for yours, you're going to miss out. It's like the little boy who dashed to the kitchen to make sure he got all the good supplies before the little girl did. Meanwhile, the girl said, I'm going to wait back. I'm going to talk to mom and pops, see where I can go. See where the authorities can take me. See where all the true stuff is, right? She learned to learn. But 
What Satan has done to frustrate your deliverance is insert the world's scale of values into your minds, often at a very young age. That's the danger of television, folks. A lot of people nowadays plop their kids in front of televisions hours on end. If it's not television with a program, it's television with a video game on it. And then they wonder why the kids have a hard time, why the kids don't want anything to do with church, because the first day they come to church, the bald guy's saying that has nothing to do with anything. They're like, what? They don't want anything to do with truth at that point, because they've been raised by the world, by inact, spiritually inactive parents, irresponsible parents. Then later on, wonder and say, what happened? What do you mean, what happened? You let someone else raise your children because you sat in front of a television. Who said Captain Kangaroo was the way to go? He was a nice guy, but I was having this discussion with someone else the other day. If you met Satan face to face, you didn't take your eyes off him. You couldn't stop listening to him. You know why? He'd be the best looking, I mean, it's hard to believe, but he'd be better looking than me and better speaking than me. I'm, all right, I shouldn't have said that. But seriously, he would be, you wouldn't, you couldn't, even men, you couldn't help but listen to him. You couldn't help but even probably follow him around a little bit. He'd be a really swell guy. And you know what he would do after you, with you after he was done with you? He'd throw you out like a used rag. You know, just like the world does. After you're done chasing this carrot for 50, 60, 70 years. After it chews you up in the gears called the grind of life. It spits you out at the other end. You go, what happened? You're an idiot. That's what happened. Satan's laughing at you. But that's what happens when you have the wrong end goals. That's what happens when you don't take in truth. When, for some people, it hits them and they leave. When truth hits you in the face, that's when you dig your heels in. Bill's like, amen. So... That's what Satan's trying to do. And he does it at a very young age. And he does it through every possible channel. Friends, family, school, all these people. They're not off limits, folks. They're all peddling the same garbage. And then, after that's inserted, then he has the audacity to impose a sense of unrelenting urgency into the equation. So not only are you hooked into this ridiculous end goal, now it's like you got to run before you miss out on it. It's, it's, it's almost comical. Ever stepped back from a certain endeavor and caught yourself being inordinately competitive and you don't even know why? Have you ever done that? You ever caught you? I've, it happens to me. It's like, Stupid. No, seriously, stupid. Come on. Pull up to a red light. Now, I'm 46 years old, right? I drive an F-150 that looks like Grandpa would own it, right? 
No, better yet. No, no, that's, that's, no, this is better. That's truck's bad idea. How about, I, got a, I have a Harley-Davidson V-Rod, 120 horsepower, thing's a bullet, right? But I drive like an old man. Once in a while, I gas it. Little, you know, the, the rice rocket. I did it on the highway. I'm doing like 65 as it is, 70, right? My, I got a real skull cap. It's back here already, right? I'm almost choked out, right? It's probably 50% of my blood is like making it, right? I think Bailey's whistling, right? Mine's like, and he's like, and he takes off. I'm like, what? Right? I'm like, I'm 46 years old. What's wrong with me? Why let some punk kid bait me into a race? What a fool. So, you know what I mean? I'm like, yeah, it's not going to happen. Right? Why do you ever catch yourself in stupid, right? But that's, that's what happens if we're not, you know, we're not, we don't stay in the, in the pocket. True story. That's the sense of urgency that is being touched upon here. I was thinking about this as well. North versus south in our own country. I've traveled extensively between my time in the service and then in industry. I think I've counted 48 out of 50 states. And here's one observation worth sharing. The south is not only noticeably in less of a rush. I mean, you go down there, people aren't cutting you off. People aren't, you know, trying to cut you in the grocery line. It's more like, yeah, good. You know, it's like courteous. It's slow. Nobody's in this huge rush. So the South is not only noticeably in less of a rush, but it also is historically more positive towards Christ. Hmm. However, the Northeast is horribly and unrelentingly in a hurry. So much so that people can't even say hi to one another. We were talking about that last night. You say hi to someone on the street and they cross the street. Or they look at you. Well, the people do that whether I say hi or not. But They don't want anything to do with you. They think you're a perv or something. Or something's wrong. Or what, what's the problem? So much so that people are often rude to those that they perceive as slowing them down. It's all because of this sense of urgency. Where does that even come from? Do people even question it anymore? What are you so competitive about? What are you racing after? I don't know! I don't know, but get out of my way! How dare you try to introduce yourself kindly to me? (laughs) This is wasting my time! Say hi and get the hell out of the way. I'm just repeating. I don't speak that way. I don't speak that way. I would say heck. Or good golly, please move aside, old chap. All right? People can't be slowed down up here. It's, 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 it's absurd. There's not that many A's in that, by the way. And what do we know about New England. We, on average, are less Bible-oriented. I've given you the statistics. We are. So do you think there's a viable correlation here? 
Christ-centeredness slowing down. Christ over there, anxiety through the roof. Hmm. Let's call those false urgencies. The fruit of unrelenting hurriedness is anxiety. People don't even know how to slow down. The, the weirdest thing is it's become institutionalized. They don't know what they're racing for. It's just everybody else is like, ah! this is going on. Right? If, everybody, if everybody got up right now, let's face it, if you were sitting right there and everybody got up and started running around like, oh, you'd probably get up and go, I better do it too. I, something, I must, something must be going on. Right? Seriously, right? Everybody's like, oh, man, i got to contribute. What am I doing? I don't know. We get sucked into this thing. And we, what he's doing is he's extracting you. He's saying, do you see how foolish that is right there? You see what you do? Take your head out of the sand. Take your hands. Stop white-knuckling the steering wheel. Let go for a second. Relax. Focus on my son. And let's reset the end goal. Let's redefine what prosperity really is. And when you do that, you're going to laugh at the rat race. You're going to scoff at it. You're going to say, I'm ashamed that I was even in it. But maybe I can tell stupid stories like the one you heard about the motorcycle, right? And we'll have a good laugh about it. That's what he's trying to He's trying to extract you. He's saying, pick your head up, stop. Pick your head up. What are you doing? What are you racing after? I've got everything under control. By the way, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. If I want you to have 999 of those cattle, then guess what I'll do? I will open a door and you will walk through it and you'll have them. But that might take a little faith. The false urgencies, the fruit of unrelenting hurriedness is anxiety. If you're consistently hurrying to achieve prosperity, chances are something is wrong. It's quite possible you don't understand God's definition for prosperity or how he imparts it. So you have a false sense of urgency. Again, the fruit of unrelenting hurriedness is anxiety. If you're consistently hurrying to achieve prosperity, chances are something is wrong. It's quite possible you don't understand God's definition for prosperity or how he imparts it. Hurried, anxious people tend to look for shortcuts. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Hurried, anxious people tend to look for shortcuts, for ways of maximizing, let's say, their efficiencies, even when it comes to God. Even when it comes to God. Is there a way I can fast-forward this lesson? I got it. No, I got it. Right? You can't do that online, so only the CD players or the DVD players do that. And we know who you are. So hurried, anxious people tend to look for shortcuts, for ways of maximizing their efficiencies, even when it comes to God. The danger with a perverted scale of values is that it produces wrong end goals. 
In other words, what do you put at the, what, what do you put, what's at the end of our reign, what's supposed to be? He's, his goal is to transform us into the image of his son, right? So our end goal is Christ. But if that end goal isn't Christ, if it's not Christ-likeness, if it's not the mind of Christ, then what is it? It's something else. So the danger with a perverted scale of values is that it produces wrong end goals, wrong objectives. You're going to end up chasing a carrot. You're going to end up chasing something that gets you absolutely nowhere because your scale of values is goofy. Your scale of values is all wrong. So if your scale of values is wrong, then the thing that percolates to the top of value isn't Christ. It's your cruddy definition of prosperity, whatever that thing is. That becomes your definition. How do I prosper? I get to my end goal. Then I'll be prosperous. How do I decide on that? My scale of values. I value attention from the world more than anything. So I'm going to get 65 plastic surgeries and be the best-looking chap in town. That's what happened to Bruce Jenner. Did he just say that? Did he really, really just say that? Yes, he did. Welcome to this church. We are real. This is real. Something's in the water. It's obvious that I need a break, right? It's happening next week. Scott already put his plug in last night. Don't be, di- you know, don't be absent when I teach, because it hurts me, he said. The danger with a perverted scale of values is that it produces wrong end goals, wrong objectives. So you, my friends, have to discern end goals. You have to stop. This is what he's doing. He's stopping you. And he's saying, pick your head up out of the sand. Where are you going? Right? It's like in the Far Side comics with the cattle. The one cattle's got his head up, and he's like, where are we going? You know, that kind of a thing. Nobody. Where are we going? This whole thing. Everybody's going in this direction. But nobody's poking their heads up. Nobody's saying, are we actually going in the right direction? What am I doing? So he's saying, stop. Pick your head up. Look around. What's the end goal? And if it's not my prosperity, then you need to regroup. Discerning end goals. If you've got marketable talent in this world, here's another danger. It may just be easier for you to go out and achieve worldly wealth. And, you know, just call it prosperity from God. I see that an awful lot, too. Jesus loves me so much, he's just been prospering me out. Like time and time again. Oh, come on. He's trying to do an update. So if you've got marketable talent in this world, it may just be easier for you to go out and achieve worldly wealth and just call it prosperity from God. This is a tremendous, subtle test for people in a prosperous nation where education and training is a so-called right. Think about that. We love to, in this country, isolate ourselves out 
we're elitist, you know what? And we say, God loves us so much, He loves our country so much, that He just blesses us out with all this prosperity, and it's all about us. Because God loves us, obviously, more than He loves the indigenous tribe in Africa that hears the gospel that is thrilled to death to be living on a dirt floor with 20 people in a hut. And all they can talk about, and all they can think about, and all they can share is Jesus Christ. But God loves us so much that all he really, really intends to do is just keep throwing money at us. Isn't this grand? Just keep throwing stuff at us and throwing more stuff at us and throwing more And then all we do is just collectively say, even as Christians, God loves us. This worldly wealth is what he wanted for us. So let's just define prosperity that way. That's the danger of living in this country. So you have to discern the end goals. Why do you live in this country? Why do you have any wealth to your name? Why, why, why? So if you've got marketable talent in this world, it may be just easier for you to go out and achieve worldly wealth and just call it prosperity from God. This is a tremendous Subtle test for people in a prosperous nation where education and training is a right. The test is for this group of individuals, or the test for this group of individuals, is to not make God a puppet. To not make God a puppet. More on this. I can't believe I'm out of time. An achievement-oriented society breeds a certain kind of arrogance towards God. Its tendency is to superimpose its definition of prosperity over God's. By establishing a perverse end goal, the only thing left to do is execute the means. If the end goal is perverted, then how will the means ever not be? In other words, if if the end goal the direction you're heading, your definition of prosperity, and you think that you've been, quote, predestined for this perverted prosperity, If, if that's your end goal, then how is any step in that direction going to be godly? You're walking in the wrong direction. That's the import of understanding the end goal. That's what I mean by discerning the end goal. Understanding what biblical prosperity actually is. And it has literally, not kinda, literally nothing to do with money or worldly wealth. Not a thing at all to do with worldly wealth. If it did, then God would have to be a puppet And everybody who did righteousness would have to get what? Worldly wealth. But we know there are people that are spiritual giants that have a donut for wealth. Who gave more in the basket than the widow? Nobody. Not even the rich people. So says Jesus. You know, the Word of God, John 1, 1, 1, 14. You know that same mind that we've been reading all night? You know that guy? 
Yeah. I think he's got the market cornered on wisdom. I think we should listen. I think he's telling you, wake up. What are you pursuing? A new brooch? Some new false teeth? Some Merlot? (laughs) What are you pursuing? Seriously, what is it that you're pursuing? You don't even know anymore, do you? Half of you don't even know. You know, I don't even know. I stuck my head up out of the sand. I don't know where the heck I was. I didn't even realize I was chasing some carrot. Why? Because your definition of prosperity has been perverted. But here's the good news, and I said this before we even started class. He's reaching in, and he's saying, you're coming with me. He's reaching in and saying, from faith to faith, I'm taking you with me. So you have to discern end goals. I'm out of time, but something to think about. An achievement-oriented society breeds a certain kind of arrogance towards God. Its tendency is to superimpose its definition of prosperity over God's by establishing a perverse end goal. The only thing left to do is execute the means. Then you just become a cog in a wheel, a machine. Where's the enjoyment in that, by the way? There isn't. If the end goal is perverted, then how will the means ever not be? Every step you take is in that direction. Every step you take is one step closer to that garbage. Think about that. If the end goal is perverted, then how will the means ever not be? A lot to think about until Sunday. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege of studying your word. This evening we ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.